Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, I'm Andrew Palmer, the Business Affairs Editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, can inequality cause mental health problems? Societies that are more unequal increase the grip that class and status have on us, increasing our anxieties about those things and leading to a range of different mental health problems. And the fashionable business model of renting clothes. Instead of buying, you can rent them, then just ship them back. You don't have to clean them or wash them. You just put them in the bag, ship them back, and they will return you a new batch. But first, President Trump has imposed tariffs on steel and aluminium imports from its allies. But the European Union, Canada and Mexico aren't taking the bullying lying down. All of them have already announced they will retaliate in some form. So how should they stand up to a trade war bully? Samaya Keynes, The Economist's trade guru, joins me from Washington, D.C. Samaya, hi. Hello. President Trump has imposed these tariffs. That in itself was not massively unexpected, right? He was he was operating to a, to a deadline. Yes. So June 1st was the deadline that he claimed, you know, countries had to negotiate a deal with him before that deadline if they wanted to avoid trade restrictions. So overall, it wasn't that surprising that he hit the EU. The European Union was expecting that they were going to be caught up. What was surprising in the day leading up to it is that Canada and Mexico got hit. You know, I've just been at a summit of the aluminium associations of the world, and they were not expecting the Canadians to be hit. And in fact, you know, the, the aluminium industry, who in theory, these tariffs were supposed to be helping, they had been lobbying with the Trump administration to exclude Canada. Why would it be surprising that Canada and Mexico were not, not in the firing line? We know that there's a negotiation going on of NAFTA, and presumably Mr Trump sees all this as leverage in negotiations. The Canadians and the Mexicans have said that they wouldn't respond kindly to that kind of leverage. So they, you know, if they if they feel like they're having to negotiate with a gun being held to their heads, then you know it looks difficult for them politically at home. Ultimately, they'd have to sell any deal at home. But also, just in terms of the damage that this will cause. So you know, there are companies who import products from Canada to the U.S. They you know, transform it a bit, they export it back to Canada, they then bring it back to the US. You know, it's looking like every time these products cross the border, they're going to be hit with a tariff. That's incredibly disruptive to the industry. I think people didn't think that the Trump administration would actually go through with it just because it would actually hurt America. Now the allies are kind of on the hook. They have to make a decision whether to respond or not. And the noises they're making so far are they're intimating that they will respond. We've had Canada talk about tariffs on things like strawberry jam, of all things. But what's your sense of what's going to happen next? Are we going to see some kind of escalating round of tariff and counter-tariff? 
It does look like America's trading partners are going to hit back with tariffs. The European Union, they've been prepping their list. Canada came out with its own list, including steel and aluminium products, but also, you know, consumer products like mayonnaise, soy sauce, strawberry jam. The Mexicans have got their own list, which includes pork, apples, sausages, but also steel. Their tactics are to try and warn the Trump administration. These things won't be imposed immediately. I think the Canadians have a consultation period of about a month. And then also just to, you know, when they do hit, to try and inflict pain and and political pressure to get them removed. And I suppose there's a difficult balancing act here for for the allies of, of America, nominal allies of America at least, which is that they want to strike back, but they also want to remain within a rules-based framework. I mean, everything that they say is about we need to respect the multilateral order. So is it legal for them to strike back um, against what the Americans have have done? Or do they have to finesse this in some way that enables them to sort of say they're, they're playing things by the book? The answer varies by country. So the European Union is claiming that the Trump administration's actions, they're not in the name of national security, as has been claimed. In fact, they're a safeguard action. And the European Union claims that if this is a safeguard action, then the rules allow them to retaliate immediately with these things called rebalancing tariffs. Just to be clear, safeguard Mm -hmm. means protecting against the surge in imports. Yes, a safeguard is a very broad tariff protecting against a very broad-based surge in imports. So Mm. you might be allowed to hit back over imports that haven't been surging. So the European Union claims you've put this tariff on us, but these exports haven't been surging, so we can rebalance that immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after three years, they're allowed to retaliate by the whole amount Uh, which is normally the incentive for these safeguard tariffs to be removed because suddenly the the retaliation gets much larger. That's what the EU is doing. And there is some legal ambiguity over that. What the other countries are doing looks a bit iffier in terms of whether they do adhere to the WTO rules. So there is the question of whether you're allowed just to reinterpret what the Americans have done. But even, even assuming that you are... It's not clear that you're allowed to retaliate by the full amount immediately. Normally what happens in these cases is that you're meant to file a dispute at the World Trade Organization. And if the lawyers find that, yes, America did do wrong, then you're granted the right to retaliate over a certain amount. In this case, basically, the countries are deciding for themselves and they're, they're hitting back over the full amount. Now, it's possible that there are some rules within NAFTA that have slightly different requirements. It could be that Canada and Mexico have more of a right to retaliate than others. But we're in really, really murky legal waters at the moment. But I think the argument that the retaliating countries would make is that this action from the Trump administration is so far outside the rules. It's so clearly this egregious act that really defies the idea of the rules-based system. So as long as they're you know, retaliating in, in a proportionate way, and they're all claiming to be hitting back by you know, no more than the amount of trade that, that they're affected by, you know, as long as they're doing that, then, you know, actually that's what's necessary to preserve the integrity of the rules-based system in, in the long run. So let's let's close then with a, with a very simple question, which is uh, you've been walking around the office sort of muttering about trade wars for, for a long time now. So on your kind of um, fear gauge, um, how, how worried are you? Are we at the point where this is really going to erupt or do you think we can climb down from here? Oh, Andrew, I'm always worried. I'm always Um, worried. And um, I'd say for the moment, 
the retaliation has been proportionate. Um, there hasn't been a sign that the Trump administration is going to hit back against the retaliation. So for now, it seems fairly contained. So I'd say I'm kind of medium worried, not uh, hysterical. But uh, watch this space. OK, steady state worry. That's good. Uh, Sumaya Keynes, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Kate Pickett is Professor of Epidemiology at the University of York. She is also co-author with Richard Wilkinson of a new book called The Inner Level, How More Equal Societies Reduce Stress, Restore Sanity and Improve Everyone's Well-Being. That's a sequel to their 2009 book, The Spirit Level, which argued that inequality affects the vast majority of a population, not only a poor minority, and causes a wide range of health and social problems. Kate Pickett, welcome to Money Talks. Thank you. Uh, Let's start back with your previous book, The Spirit Level. It was published in 2009, I think. Mm -hmm. It was just as inequality was starting to, to become a really big theme of political debate. And obviously, the world has changed a lot since then in terms of how this topic is front and centre now. So does it feel like you're publishing into a very different environment? Absolutely, it really does. Um, When the spirit level came out in 2009, we were just post the global financial crisis. Inequality had been off the political agenda for a long, long time. And so it was released into a world where people hadn't really been thinking about the impact of inequality for a long time and certainly didn't realise Um, how many health and social problems it caused, how large the effects were, or indeed that we were all affected. That was news to a lot of people. It's been almost 10 years since then, and the world has really changed, in part because of the financial crisis, but in part because of work like ours and work by people like Thomas Piketty. And there's a much greater understanding that um, extreme levels of inequality are really bad for societies, and that's a very widespread view now. So we have the head of the International Monetary Fund talking about the problems caused by inequality, people at the World Bank. And last year, the World Economic Forum at Davos listed inequality as the number one challenge facing the world um, for development over the next decade. So there's there's been a lot of change. And yeah, I think this book is coming out in a very different climate. But it's coming out at a timely moment, because it's very much focused on how Income inequality affects our intimate worlds, our relationships, our mental well-being. And that's that's where this book differs, right? This is focused focused on the individual. But there's a growing awareness in our society that we are living through a mental health crisis. So I think it's a very timely moment for this book to be coming out. And can you sort of just map out for us in very broad, brief terms what what the argument of the book is? What we're doing is showing that societies that are more unequal increase the grip that class and status have on us, increasing our anxieties about those things and leading to a range of different mental health problems um, and psychological issues. But we also spend time busting a couple of the myths that are held about inequality or, or that allow people to tolerate high levels of inequality. The idea that we can't tackle it because it's just human nature, you know, it's just the way we are. Or the idea that well, we live in a meritocracy and the capable move up and the less capable move down, so it's okay if we have inequality. And we show that neither of those ideas are right. And we also talk about solutions for inequality, focused mainly on increasing economic democracy 
and how essential it is that we reduce inequality if we're going to move to sustainable economies. It sounds like it's a two-step process, right? Inequality causes status anxiety, status anxiety causes mental health issues. That's right, yes. How do we know that for sure? How do you tease out all of the, uh, the other confounding variables that may exist? Well, we've known about the link between income inequality and mental illness for a long time, and we used to have to mm, theorise about why why that was the case. But we didn't have data to show that link. Um, now those data are available and, in fact, show that people are more worried about their status across the income distribution in more unequal societies. So even the rich worry more in more unequal societies than the rich in more equal societies. And are there outliers out there? That, that I mean, if This presumably is the rule, but what are the exceptions? There are always outliers. Um, income inequality we view very much as a root cause of a whole range of problems, but it's not the only cause of, of any of those different outcomes. Italy has much lower levels of mental illness than you would expect based on its inequality, which most people think probably has something to do with the importance of the family and the connectedness of Italian society. But to be honest, we're much less interested in the outliers than we are in the common variants explained by inequalities. That, that is remarkable. And so to, to look at the other end of, of, of the scale, presumably you would see countries like, like the good old Scandinavians doing better on uh, mental health outcomes as a result of being less they do. unequal. They do indeed do better. Um, but even those countries are, are not immune to changes. So... Um, Sweden has the fastest growing inequality in any of the OECD countries and consequently has seen its child well-being decline. So we can see changes resulting from changes in inequality even among that set of much more equal countries. Let's come to some of those myths that you mentioned at, at the outset. So there would be an argument put, put forward which says that income inequality is a natural, inevitable result of a free market system with winners, winners and losers. And if you want to have the benefits of, of growth, prosperity that that system has delivered, um, then you've got to lump a bit of inequality. What would, you, what would you say to that? Well, I think the argument sometimes goes even deeper than that. And people say that actually it's our human nature. It's a sort of a Darwinian um, result, um, you know, a sort of survival of the fittest. And we are by nature, therefore, competitive, aggressive, individualistic. But if we look back deep into our prehistory as well as our history, we see that um, human beings have lived in egalitarian, fairly reciprocal, caring, sharing, hunter-gatherer societies for 90% of the time that we have been anatomically modern human beings. And it was only with the rise of agriculture that we saw the development of more hierarchical systems of society where people are perhaps encouraged to be more individualistic, more competitive. So what we're saying is not that we are um, by nature only egalitarian and caring and reciprocal or aggressive, competitive and individualistic, but that we have both sides to our nature and the degree to which people will choose one strategy over another is shaped by the inequality in the society they grow up in. What's your optimal outcome here? Do you have in your sense a kind of um, a perfect level of equality slash inequality? What, what's, and, and people talk in terms of sort of equality of opportunity and then you let merit, the meritocratic system play out. Or are you thinking much more in terms of we need, we need to get to an outcome in terms of income distribution from which good things flow? 
we're not talking about some kind of utopian goal here or any kind of perfect equality. All of our analysis is based on existing rich market democracies. And we can see that with slight increases in equality, you get quite a lot of improvement. So any incremental change is useful. And it's impossible to say how far those benefits would go if societies became even more equal than those that we have in existence um, at the current time. So reducing inequality even slightly is going to be an improvement. So we would say that's that's the number one aim is to get it down. So if you saw a small decrease in inequality, are there observable improvements in mental health outcomes? And can you quantify those mm. for us? There should be observable improvements. It's very hard to say how much because other things affect those problems too. And we'd also see some immediate effects and some more long-term effects. So we know now, for instance, that um, people are affected all through their life by the inequality they experience when they're young children. So it will take a long time to observe those benefits. But I think we see, for instance, with um, mortality rates, with physical health, that if you reduce your inequality, you will start to see those benefits within five to seven years um, and lasting through 12 years, you know, just from a, from a single reduction. In time for the, the next book? In time for the next book, if it takes us that long to write. The Inner Level is uh, published in the UK on the 7th of June. Kate Pickett, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Let us know what you think about this or any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Finally, how would you feel about renting your clothes? And could it be a successful model for the future? One company in New York is leading the way, and Slavea Chankova, who writes about data, business and policy trends at The Economist, is here to tell us all about it. So, Slavea, start by telling us about this company. It's called Rent the Runway, or RTR. What does it do? Rent the Runway is renting out clothes. So instead of buying, you can rent them and then just ship them back. You don't have to clean them or wash them. You just put them in the bag, ship them back to Rent the Runway, and they will return you a new batch of clothes that you've picked. And this is online, is it? Is that, is that how you choose it? Or do you go into a store? Some of the customers will would pick them online. And those who live in big American cities, including New York, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, and a few others, could actually go to Rent the Runway store, try them on, and take them home and do their drop-offs right there. And the boss of RTR, Jennifer Hyman, has big ambitions. She's talked about in the past, I think, taking on Zara and H&M, both of the giants of the, the high street. Does that seem in any way plausible to you? And how big are they now? Rent the Runway has claimed to have 9 million customers already, uh, which is quite a lot. She does indeed want to take Zara and H&M out of business, but that is unlikely to happen. They have thousands of stores around the world, and uh, not everyone is willing to wear clothes that have been worn by others. So clothes sharing just isn't for everyone. Well, so that's exactly where I was going next. There's a slight kind of ickiness to this, I suspect, right? I mean, who wore this last would be a question that maybe you'd ask if you were renting renting clothes. So how do they get around that problem? They do a pretty good job cleaning uh, the clothes. So uh, the idea is that whatever you get should be should look like new. So they would only rent out clothes for a certain number of rounds and then retire them from circulation. Some people feel more comfortable with the idea. Some surveys show that about 40% of women in America who have heard about Rent the Runway and similar startups 
are willing to rent clothes, but that obviously leaves 60% who are not interested in the idea. And, and where are you? 40 or 60? I think I would try them out. I think uh, uh, just the ability to wear clothes from uh, designers that you cannot afford to purchase every now and then is quite appealing. And what are the other problems? So there might be this kind of conceptual problem to get over about renting clothes, but are there other issues that, that prevent this from, from growing very fast? There are the obvious glitches with the model. So if you are uh, one of the monthly renters, so the people who have uh, four items at a time and rotate them constantly, every now and then they may get something that maybe hasn't been cleaned properly or has, um, hasn't been mended. You mm -hmm. know, things fall through the crack occasionally. Shipping is another problem. So, uh, you know, it takes time to ship. Uh, garments back and forth. So if you pay for a monthly subscription, obviously uh, that would limit how, how many clothing items you can uh, have in a given month. Because you can't rent out until the prior set of clothes has gone back, is that exactly, right? Exactly, yes. Until it arrives back at the, at the warehouse, you cannot place a new order. Okay. So it makes sense still to have some clothes of your own as a backup. Absolutely. People will continue to buy clothes, even in a, even those who are using rental services will buy something. And what's your best guess? If we go sort of 10 years out, do you think renting clothes is going to be a really normal part of, of everyday life? I think it definitely is a business model that's here to stay. One of the companies, uh, Letout, has actually been expanding in China. It's a proven model. It will be a part of the fashion retail business. How big it will get is difficult to predict, but it will definitely be out there. Fantastic. Slavia Chankova, thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Andrew Palmer in London. This is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.